Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation. His designs and structure, each time will flush up. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever, we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, folks. That is what we do here at Theology Matters. We are so glad you guys were able to join us today and uh, got a good show for you. We're going to be talking to my good friend Adam uh, Johnson, 
and he's going to be talking a little bit about the movie Interstellar and uh, just talking about some ethical uh, issues and some, some interesting things like that. So be sure to stay with us. We are going to bring him on uh, around the 6.30 mark here, or at least Eastern time at 6.30, so about 20, 25 minutes. Um, if you have not liked our Facebook page, uh, make sure you go to Theology Matters with the Palouse. And with that, what you'll see is we have a lot of our archived shows up there, our podcasts. Um, we put articles, we do links, we do a lot of different things to try and kind of keep people in the loop about what is going on with uh, in the world of uh, Christian apologetics. Um, let's see, in October, we have a pretty big event coming up, um, October 16th and 17th, if you're in the Charlotte area, especially. Uh, they're going to be doing the uh, National... Christian Apologetics Conference, and this is the biggest apologetics conference uh, in the nation, and the Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go to school at, has been hosting this this, uh, conference for something like 20 years, Uh, and so it is just a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, conference, and they bring in the best of the best. A few years back, they had Robbie Zacharias there, he's kind of a hard guy to kind of book, He's pretty much booked, I think, for the next uh, several years out. Uh, but we've been able to have uh, William Lane Craig, Stephen Meyer, Ken Samples, uh, of course, the whole Reasons to Believe crew, uh, Answers in Genesis, uh, Institute of Creation Research. Several of those groups uh, have come out there, and uh, it's been a real blessing uh, just to be at this conference. And it normally lasts all day Friday, starts in the morning, goes till 8 or 9 at night. Uh, and then starts up again on Saturday and ends probably around 4 or 5. Now, for the last few years, what they've been doing is after the conference is they saw the Ratio Christi Symposium. So for those who are not familiar familiar with Ratio Christi, uh, this is a ministry, Latin for Reasons for Christ, is a college ministry uh, across numerous different college campuses. So... Uh, you can have you have Ratio Christie's at Berkeley, FSU, Clemson. Um, I think there's almost 200 chapters now, and uh, I'm a chapter director at uh, Winthrop University here in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And so what they do at the symposium is they offer a few different tracks, uh, and they offer them for not only the students but also the faculty now, and Last year, one was a philosophy track, uh, and the other was a science track. And they bring in some really incredible speakers. Actually, it's the guys that are still here from the conference, uh, the big apologetics conference. And they have a two, you know, basically a, a, day, a full day and a half of training. Just a great time. You get to, to meet other chapter directors. You get to meet other uh, students who are involved in apologetics. <clears throat> and it's, it's really a great time. Uh, so if you're around, you know, be sure to come visit us at the Ratio Christi Symposium. One of the, one of the neat things that's going on now uh, with Ratio Christi, it used to be the Ratio Christi Student Alliance, uh, but they now have changed the name because they're going to start focusing on trying to talk with uh, the professors and 
uh, equip the professors and the faculty uh, as well in Christian apologetics. And uh, my lovely wife had a meeting today with uh, one of the staff members there at the university who is a believer and uh, was just very excited about getting a Christian apologetics on the college campus and potentially being able to even train some of the faculty. Um, you know, a lot of people just are not aware of so many of the incredibly rich and powerful arguments there is for the existence of God. You know, you have the new atheists out nowadays, and uh, really it's just kind of old atheism, uh, only a little less intellectual and a lot louder. And they're really, they, what they want to do is shame Christians uh, and shame people who believe that God exists and the feeling stupid, etc. And then uh, what they will do from them is, you know, muzzle them. And so a lot of professors are just, uh, they're not equipped, and they don't understand, uh, they haven't heard some of the arguments before, and so uh, it can cause havoc on their faith. And uh, as we know, the university sometimes is not the most um, receptive place to Christians. And so what we want to do is be able to come alongside and uh, equip both faculty and and students, and so be praying for us about that. So at the, at the Ratio Christi Symposium, uh, there will be an opportunity for staff to be able to come and get um, trained and equipped as well. So again, that's going to be um, that is going to be October 16th, 17th, and 18th. Uh, so be sure to to join us for that. Um, in October, we have uh, several good shows coming up. We're going to be doing our famous Reformation Month. Uh, and in that month, we look at the Protestant Reformation that happened and what are some of the issues that still divide us, what are some of the issues that Roman Catholics and Protestants can agree on. And I do actually have one debate uh, already set up. And for those who listened last year, and if you, if you haven't heard it, you can go uh, in our archives and find it. Uh, the discussion between Doug Beaumont and Tony Arsenal. And that was a dis discussion that was had on the issue of justification, how one is justified. So got a hold of them again, both of them again, and they were wanting to, to do a kind of a round two, uh, but do a different topic on uh, the issue of purgatory, whether or not the, uh, the uh, whether or not purgatory is a kind of a Christian idea or not, or if the Roman Catholic Church is on air. So follows also in October, as we will be doing uh, several shows on the Reformation, probably plan on looking at uh, do, developing a whole show on, on how we got the canon. That's a question that always comes up, uh, as well as hit on the issues of Sola Scriptura as well, because those are just some of the big issues that always come up in this debate. Who's the authority? Who's got the authority? Who decides? Who interprets? Etc. So be sure to join us for that. Uh, let's see. This Saturday, if you're in the area, we're going to be doing a discipleship conference uh, at Park Baptist Church, where, uh, in fact, uh, my pastor was on last week. We did the whole interview on the nine marks of a healthy church, and he uh, helped walk us through a lot of those issues. And so 
be sure to join us if you're in the area, 717 East Main Street, Rock Hill, and that will be from uh, about 10 in the morning uh, until about 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And we do these discipleship seminars because uh, it's a good way to get to know people in the community, but also a good way to uh, be able to interact on on some issues. Um, One of the topics I'm going to be teaching is Jesus of Christianity versus Jesus of the cults, uh, why only the biblical Jesus can save. Uh, We're doing this topic because, uh, especially in America, it is certainly not unusual uh, on a Saturday morning, as you're trying to sleep in, to have a a knock at the door and either find a couple of uh, Mormon missionaries or a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses standing at the door. And what we want to do is be able to equip Christians to be able to answer uh, some of the objections that are often put up. And this happens because um, a lot of times uh, Christians, though well-meaning, are just not equipped to be able to deal with a lot of the the objections and answers and questions uh, that can come up from the other side. Um, What I have seen myself, and again, I grew up in in Utah, and uh, which is, of course, kind of Mormon country out there, and what you see is a real push uh, to use a lot of the similar language that Orthodox Christianity has always used. But what happens is a lot of times uh, the meaning of those terms, uh, a completely different meaning used and, and poured into those terms. And so what we want to do is train people how to look for uh, equivocations, um, etc. So... We're going to talk a little bit uh, more about that. Uh, We're going to go ahead and take a short break and come back. We're going to talk a little more about uh, how to share the faith and uh, how to share the gospel with our Mormon and Jehovah's Witnesses friends, some of the objections that are commonly brought up, uh, as well as just kind of going over what are some of the views that they hold to. So stick with us, and then again at 630 we'll have Adam Johnson on, and we will move into that section. So we'll go ahead and take a quick break. Come back and look at uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. My name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm a cold case homicide detective. Cold case investigations can teach us a lot about how to investigate the claims of Christianity. Cold case detectives examine events in the distant past for which there are often no living eyewitnesses and little, if any, forensic evidence. The Gospels also record an event in the distant past for which there are no living eyewitnesses and no forensic evidence. The skills I've learned as a cold case detective can help you determine if the Gospels are true. I'll teach you how to be a good detective. My new book, Cold Case Christianity, will provide you with 10 important principles known to all cold case detectives. I want to give you tools to help you examine the evidence and draw the most reasonable inference. Cold Case Christianity will help you take these 10 principles of homicide investigations and apply them to the New Testament Gospels. Are the Gospel writers reliable eyewitnesses? Can they be trusted? Has their testimony been corrupted over the years? What can we conclude about Jesus from the Gospel eyewitness accounts? 
I want you to come away with fresh insight and the ability to articulate what you discover as you read the Gospels. All right, folks, and we are back. And Casey, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hey, I didn't know. I didn't know you were on the line. I would have brought you no on problem. ten minutes ago, and I uh, would have quit my rambling. <laughs> I, no uh, I, I, I enjoyed your rambling. <laughs> yes, yeah, I didn't hear back from you, so I wasn't sure if you were wasn't sure if you were coming on or not. But uh, oh, I thought I, I thought I did write back to you this morning, and I even sent you an email. Uh, at the beginning of the show, saying I was on the line, but no problem, no problem. <laughs> yeah, well, must have crossed the uh, communication there somewhere. But uh, go ahead, go ahead. What do you what do you have for us? Uh, well, uh, you wanted me to talk about sort of the latest in the intelligent design world. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, uh, we sounds like we got just a couple minutes here, so I can talk about a major find that's been in the news lately. I'm sure that some of your listeners have heard about the discovery of these fossils from South Africa of these supposed hominin bones uh, that are being called a new species of, of human ancestor called Homo naledi. I don't know. Have you heard about this at all, Devin? I did, yeah. Did you? Or, yeah. Yeah, I, I heard about the, it, yeah. Yeah. It's been all over the news lately, and uh, uh, it's been definitely uh, a hot news item. We've been getting lots of inquiries at Discovery Institute about it. Um, so uh, to make a, a long story short here, uh, we've been blogging about this new find at evolutionnews.org. It is definitely not the human ancestor that many uh, folks out there are claiming that they would like it to be. Um, it seems to be, uh, for one, it, it's actually not really clear exactly what this fossil is. They found about uh, over a thousand bones in the back of a cave near Johannesburg, South Africa. But the bones are not connected to one another, so they don't necessarily know exactly what you know the bones are. Do they represent one single species with a bunch of different individuals? Do they represent multiple species, maybe? The, definitely the promoters of the fossil want it to be one single species, but I think that that case has not been solidified uh, at all yet. Um, the other claim that's being made is that these uh, this, this sort of ape-like species bury its dead, that they would actually bury their dead at the back of this cave. Um, and this is evidence of sort of, uh, you know, maybe human-like behavior in this ape-like species, sort of it was starting to evolve human-like behavior and higher intelligence, and, and they sort of want you to think that. Well, that's been a very controversial claim, actually, when you read some of the, uh, the criticisms, actually, from other evolutionary scientists in the, that have been talking about this new find. Uh, the reality is we don't know how those bones ended up in the back of the cave. Maybe they mm. were, you know, burying their dead, throwing these uh, dead members of their tribe or whatever, you know, their family into the back of the cave. Or maybe they were there for very different reasons. Maybe they would run into the cave to escape predators. I mean, we're talking about Africa. There are many animals that will go after you and try to kill you in Africa. You know, lion, cheetah, uh, elephant. Uh, all buffalo, all kinds of things that will run you down. It's possible that this is a hiding place that these uh, ape-like creatures would run into to get away from predators. There was no special human-like, you know, ritualistic burial of the dead going on whatsoever. They were just trying to run away from something that was trying to eat them, uh, like any good ape would do. So, you know, it's hard <laughs> to tell exactly what the fact that these bones are all found 
at the back of the cave, what that means. Um, and I think that a lot of the, the claims that have been made by the, the team that discovered the fossils are pretty speculative. The last sort of major point I would make about these fossils is that they have not determined the age of the fossils. They found them in the back of this cave, but they have no idea how old they are. Um, you can only carbon date back to about 50,000 years, and, uh, you know, these fossils could be anywhere from, from that back to, you know, two, three, four, who knows how many million years old they might be. Um, it's no right. question. They have not been able to get, you know, any firm dates on these fossils yet. Without a firm date, it's impossible to say what the evolutionary significance is. I can tell you what they want these fossils to be. They want the fossils to be <laughs> right around 2.5 to 3 million years old because that is a period of time where we have virtually no fossils in the fossil record. It's also the period of time right before our own genus Homo appears in the fossil record. So what they love, would love to find is, you know, some species that they can say, oh, here's, here's the transitional species that was evolving into our genus Homo. Of course, they've already called it Homo, Homo naledi. That's another controversial claim. I mean, this thing had a brain the size of, of uh, you know, a, a chimp, basically. I'm not so sure that it belongs in the genus Homo, but, you know, taxonomic classification is a very subjective kind of exercise. So you can pretty much shoehorn whatever you want into whatever, whatever genus or species that you like, if that's what you want to do. But, uh, you know, I think this thing was pretty different from us and does not necessarily belong in our genus Homo. Anyway, the bottom line is because there's no age on the fossils, it's impossible to say what its evolutionary significance is. So these, these new stories out there that are saying, oh, we've discovered a new human ancestor, well, this fossil may turn out to have lived after humans appeared. So clearly yeah, it could not right. be our ancestor in that case. Yeah. So Can I ask you a question on that, Casey? Uh, how do they date those those bones? Because I know that, like you said, with the carbon dating, it only goes back fifty thousand years. So how do they date? Uh, how, how do they how do they determine whether the bones are two point five million years old? It's it's challenging to date hominid bones um, because they often are found in these sorts of circumstances in, in the back of a cave or something like that. Uh, if you the ideal way to find a hominid bone you could date would be that you find a bone. In, uh, locked into some kind of strata, right? And maybe right below the strata would be, say, uh, uh, some volcanic ash. And so you can take that volcanic ash and you can radiometrically date the ash, okay? And maybe then you get a date of, say, you know, 4 million years. So you know that uh, if it's right, if that ash is right below the, where you found the fossil, then the fossil is younger than 4 million years, okay, because the fossil was found above this ash layer that's 4 million years. So that gives you sort of a maximum age of the fossil. Then you go and you search for more, and, you, and you're looking at the strata, and you find that in the, in the rock layers right above the fossil, maybe you have a, uh, a lava flow, and you date that lava flow, and that lava flow dates through radiometric dating, let's say, to uh, 3 million years, okay? Well, now you know that the fossil is older than 3 million years because you found something above it that dates to, to 3 million years. Well, now you may not be able to directly date those bones, but you've been able to date something that was above and below it and give you sort of a, a constraint, an upper bound and a lower bound on what the age could be. So that is sort of the typical way that bones like this are dated. It requires a lot of stratigraphy, uh, figuring out exactly where the bones 
fit into the, the geological layers, and then hoping you can find a layer both above and below the bones that can be dated to try to narrow the date of those bones. Um, in this case, though, as we said, these bones were not found locked in the strata. They were just found sitting at the back of a cave, okay? So really about the only thing you could do is if you could date sort of the minimum age of the cave somehow, you might be able to say, okay, well, these bones are, you know, they're younger, they're younger than that, right? Um, and so because they obviously the cave formed before the, the bones got there. So that would be one way to do it. But, I mean, caves are not easy to date. They're, they're the absence of something rather the, than the appearance of something. My guess is right now what they're looking at are other fossils that are associated with these bones. They found some rodent fossils and some bird fossils with these hominid fossils in the cave. And they're probably hoping to uh, say, okay, well, we know that this, you know, rodent species lived, you know, X number of years ago, so maybe these, these hominid bones were from about the same time. But even then, it's hard to make it a definitive claim because you don't know if all those bones arrived in that cave at the same time. Maybe, maybe those bones are way older than this fossil. So that's some of the yeah. challenges that they're faced here. Yeah, and, and this may sound like a stupid question, but... Uh... If they if they, if if the carbonating goes up to fifty thousand years old, um, is there any possible way that what they have found just could be an extinct type of uh, you know monkey or what whatever it is? I mean, would they even bother carbon dating it? I mean, what if they carbon dated it and they still found that there was some some carbon? Um, that would at least show that uh, it's not you know whatever in in the ancestor. I mean, would it? Do you think it's possible that they would even they could get carbon if they did a carbon date on those bones or no? You know, it, I suppose it's possible. Um, with, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is possible that they could do that. And if they found it, and that would, if they found some uh, level of carbon fourteen still in the bones that had not decayed into uh, uh, carbon twelve, then that would show you that the fossils are less than fifty thousand years old. Yeah, so they're just a young. different kind of uh, a could, – could just be like an extinct species of, of whatever within the last 50,000 years. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Devin. That's a, that's a great point. My guess is they probably – they don't want that result. <laughs> they don't want the fossil to be that young. <laughs> like I said, they, they, what they really hope is it's two and a half to three million years old. Uh, they're, not, they're not trying to hide their biases of what they want the data to tell them. But the truth is, right now, nobody knows. We could speculate all day. I don't think anybody knows. I'm sure that there are people working on it, and maybe if they can get an answer, we'll see a paper published in the coming months or years on it. But at this point, um, all they've got are, are these interesting bones, and a lot of them, and nobody knows when they live. <laughs> <laughs> Where should we be looking? Can we be? Are you guys going to be doing updates as kind of more information comes in so we know uh, kind of what, what to think of this? or? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, check out evolutionnews.org. We've already got a couple of articles there. Um, I've, I've been working on one. I had a bad reaction to a tetanus shot, actually, and spent a few days in bed uh, over the last week. So my article's been slow getting up there, but I'm, I'm hopefully going to get up there in the next day or two now that I'm feeling better. So, uh, yeah, check out evolutionnews.org, and uh, we've got some articles up. Um, and, you know, really the, the lesson here, I'm sure that your listeners – this is old news to them, but the lesson here is when you see these news stories that are pushing this uh, line that we've heard over and over again, oh, a new fossil species is discovered and it's a new human ancestor. 
be skeptical of these claims. There's a lot of hype that goes into the news media's promotion of these uh, hominid fossils. They always want to take every opportunity they can to push Darwinism on the public and to evangelize the public for Darwin. And they see the, the, the first initial reports of a discovery of fossils as a great opportunity to go push evolution on the public. But what invariably happens is the initial news stories, they, they really hype these fossils, make them sound like some great new human ancestors has been found. And then what happens is in the, in the next uh, month or even years, cooler heads tend to prevail, and you will see papers published in the technical literature that says, well, you know what? These fossils were not really exactly what they were originally chalked up to be. Um, and we've seen, I've seen that pattern so many times over the years. I would be shocked if we don't see that pattern here as well. So you read the news media's coverage of this fossil and other similar ones with a really healthy dose of skepticism. Yeah, it's funny because you never hear really like after it's kind of been dismissed. It's kind of like on page 12 in the newspaper, you know, but when it's found, it's, it's all over. It's page one. Everyone's hearing it. But after it gets dismissed, it's kind of like nobody really, you know, they kind of bury that uh, in, in that the problems with it, right? That's right. If they if they cover it at all, right? I mean, most of the time, you don't even get that page twelve story saying, "Oh, you know, a paper was published in the journal Nature saying that this really wasn't a, a human-like creature. It was a it was an ape-like thing that had nothing to do with us." You know, you don't they don't even run a story on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad we had you on just uh, just to tell us about that, and that's that's good. My apologies, I just checked, and and uh, somehow it's set from my other email, so I, I wasn't aware, but I apologize. We can't wait to get you back on the show. And uh, uh, again, Evolution News and Views is at dot org. Just evolutionnews.org. and no problem, Devin. It's fun to come on, and perfect amount of time to, to talk about the fossil here. So I appreciate it. All right, look forward to having you on again, my friend, and we'll be praying for you to get feeling better. All right, appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and take a uh, quick break, and then we will be back with Adam Johnson, and we'll be looking at uh, some issues dealing with natural law and some uh, fun stuff like that. So stay with us. My name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm a cold case homicide detective. Cold case investigations can teach us a lot about how to investigate the claims of Christianity. Cold case detectives examine events in the distant past for which there are often no living eyewitnesses and little, if any, forensic evidence. The Gospels also record an event in the distant past for which there are no living eyewitnesses and no forensic evidence. The skills I've learned as a cold case detective can help you determine if the Gospels are true. I'll teach you how to be a good detective. My new book, Cold Case Christianity, will provide you with 10 important principles known to all cold case detectives. I want to give you tools to help you examine the evidence and draw the most reasonable inference. Cold Case Christianity will help you take these 10 principles of homicide investigations and apply them to the New Testament Gospels. Are the Gospel writers reliable eyewitnesses? Can they be trusted? Has their testimony been corrupted over the years? What can we conclude about Jesus from the Gospel eyewitness accounts? I want you to come away with fresh insight and the ability to articulate what you discover as you read the Gospels. 
If you're a Christian, I want you to have the confidence of a good detective. If you're a skeptic, I want to give you something reasonable to think about. I hope you'll read Cold Case Christianity to discover how evidence is examined and what this evidence tells us about Jesus. Take another look at the claims of Christianity from the perspective of a detective. What runs the show in biology is information. The same thing is true in life. If you want to produce life in the first place, if you want to develop a new form of life from a pre-existing form of life, you have to provide information. And so the question is, where does that information come from? The Signature of the Cell by Dr. Stephen C. Meyer will show that the digital code embedded in DNA points powerfully to a designing intelligence and helps unravel a mystery that Darwin did not address. How did the very first life begin? In stores June 23rd. Signatureinthecell.com All right, folks. Thanks for joining us again. That was, uh, again, that was Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute. And uh, I love having him on about once a month just to kind of let us know what's going on in the world of science and some of the latest uh, issues going on in the uh, evolution versus intelligent design debate. Uh, for those who want more, uh, last month we spent the whole month looking at uh, intelligent design, science in the Bible, uh, philosophy of science. We interviewed 10 samples for an hour. Uh, it's talking about some of the limits of science, how science and philosophy go together. Uh, we're also able to interview Jane Warner Wallace, uh, who you heard a few minutes ago there talking about cold case Christianity, where we talked about his book, uh, God's Crime Scene. Good good hour-long interview with that, so be sure to check that out. Uh, great book, by the way. Uh, and then we were also able to uh, spend some time with Casey Luskin and Stephen Meyer on the new book, Debating Darwin's Doubt. And when Darwin's Doubt came out, uh, both of Dr. Meyer's books have just been bombshells kind of on the, on the book scene. But when Darwin's Doubt came out, I mean, it was uh, greeted with a lot of hostility from a lot of um, evolutionists, and uh, the book is really kind of dealing with the, with the uh, pre-Cambrian era, how you have such uh, complex organisms um, right, right at the get-go, seemingly missing um, a lot of the transitions, and just not what is expected to find kind of in the gradualistic neo-Darwinian view. So that book came out, Immediately, it was hit with a bunch of criticism. Uh, and so what they did was they produced a sequel, kind of a, a sequel, called Debating Darwin's Doubt, where they go through and they, they take on the best criticisms of the book and they just knock it down one by one. Stephen Meyer, K, uh, Casey Luskin, and, and several other contributors. So be sure to catch that show and be sure to get those books. So thanks again to Casey for coming on. So now we're going to transition, and we're going to move into our second guest, uh, Adam Johnson. He has been on our, our show before. He's a good friend of mine. He graduated with a Master's in Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he is currently Associate Pastor 
at TKK Baptist Church, which is right up the road from me here in South Carolina, and is working on a Ph.D. in theological studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So, Adam, are you there? I am. Hi, Devin. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Good to have you back on. Well, I'm pleased to be here. I really enjoy your show, and I'm I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, to talk talk with you about these things. Yeah, I think last time you were on, did we we did a show on uh, Francis Schaeffer, right? Yeah, he's one of my heroes, one of my favorite guys to to talk about and write about. I I look up to him in in so many ways. Yeah, for those who who maybe uh, missed the show, you guys can go back and and catch it on the podcast. Uh, but for those who are not familiar with us, uh, with the Adam, just give us a little background about yourself. How did you uh, become a Christian, and how did you get involved in the area of uh, apologetics and philosophy? Yeah, yeah, well, I appreciate that. No, um, I became a Christian when I was almost 17 years old. Um, it's hard to believe that it was that long ago now, but over 20 years, I was in high school and uh, grew up in kind of a, a Christian environment, kind of a Christian culture, if you will, but um, didn't really understand um, the whole um, uh, trusting in Christ, a a personal decision. I had thought that I was going to heaven because I was a relatively good person, so I thought. And um, when somebody explained, you know, the whole gospel, the plan of salvation to me, it was kind of one of those light bulb over-the-head moments that, yeah, I was trusting in the wrong thing. I I mean, I had believed that God existed. I believed the Bible was true. I just, I was trusting in myself to get to heaven and not what God had done for me through Christ. So that's when I became a Christian, when I was about 17 years old. But something interesting happened when I was in my 20s. And uh, I find this to be, you know, a relatively common thing the more I've talked with folks and, and heard other people's stories. But I went through kind of a... I guess you could call it a crisis of faith, um, even though I grew up uh, believing in God and the Bible. Um, there was a period of, of my life in my 20s after I had became a Christian where I went through a, a big a struggle with those areas and had a lot of doubts and, and just uh, questions about Christianity and uh, flirted with atheism, I guess you could put it that way. And what it did was really, um, it was kind of a, a, a a trying time in my life, but I'm very thankful for it now uh, because what it did is it drove me into really under, trying to understand why I believe these things. Did, was there good evidence and reason, or was this just was this just happened to be part of the culture that I grew up in? Um, you know, or was there good reason and evidence for believing these things? And so it really drove me, Devin, into. Um, what you said, apologetics and philosophy. That's how I fell in love with Schaefer. That's how I fell in love with, um, you know, scientific apologetics, historical apologetics, and then quickly um, realized that the real, um, as I see it, the real heart of the matter um, is in philosophy. And so that led me from. I'm originally from Nebraska, but uh, that kind of that whole process led me down here to. Um, South Carolina and North Carolina to study first at Southern Evangelical Seminary and then at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary where I'm working on my Ph.D., as you said, in um, what's theological studies but with an emphasis in uh, philosophy. Wow. How how has philosophy kind of helped? Because you, you 
touch on that a little bit. You say uh, kind of the heart of the matter. What do you What do you mean by that for people who are interested? Because I think a lot of people think philosophy and Christianity are completely incompatible, and uh, you know, philosophy means atheism. Yeah, no doubt, and I and I still get that a lot from Christians. And you know, what's that verse in Colossians about? Uh, stay away from from philosophy. Stay away from bad philosophy. It seems as though Paul's warning us. So what is this? What is this? Um, why do I say philosophy is, is the heart of the matter? Well, I, I'm, I don't say that to belittle scientific apologetics. I don't I say that to belittle historical apologetics. I think those things are very important and valuable and great fields. Um, and those are the fields that I jumped into right away, you know, talking about evolution, studying uh, scientific evidence and, and then historical evidence. How do we know the Bible is historically accurate, all those type of things. You know, great fields, you know, no doubt, very important. But as I got um, um, deeper into those two respective areas, it, it quickly became obvious that um, folks were bringing their philosophy to the table. They were bringing their, you could call them presuppositions, uh, their philosophical um, biases, if you will. And it quickly... Um, it quickly delved, as I saw it, and whether you were watching a debate or reading a book between two authors who were debating something, it quickly would delve into philosophical issues. You know, what qualifies as good evidence? Um, uh, and, and both in the history side of things and the scientific side of things, it just kept seemed like it would go back and um, to philosophy time and time again. And um, what qualifies as, a, as good evidence, what qualifies as a good argument, um, those type of things. And so at first I wasn't interested in philosophy at all, um, but I quickly uh, realized the, the importance. And, and that's really where the, you know, the heart of the issues are, is this area which we call philosophy, which is just um, you know, the questions about what is, what is real. And then how do we know what is real? Um, epistemology. So those two, those areas um, really are where I find uh, to be the most interesting. And so that's where I've chosen, you know, when I really wanted to dive in and, and make apologetics a big part of my life, what area that I want to concentrate on, and that's why I, I chose to concentrate on uh, philosophy. How, how has that kind of helped you in the pastorate? Because I know a lot of, a lot of pastors probably are not also philosophers which is a shame, but uh, how has philosophy helped you in the pastorate? Well, I think there's a lot of dimensions to it. I mean, as I explain to people, um, you know, why I chose to study philosophy, um, there's several reasons, but some of the some of the big reasons, um, for example, are, you know, Paul does say that we need to be aware of bad philosophy. We need to be beware of it. Um, that there is very um, bad thinking that is out there. You can call it worldviews, whatever it is. There is incorrect, um, non-true uh, belief systems, and he said to beware of them. Well, I think it's important to to study these uh, false belief systems, and um, for several reasons. I think studying, for example, the history of Western philosophy is very valuable in the sense that um, we can uh, protect ourselves from it. You know, like I talked about before, a lot of times 
folks, including myself, we adopt these beliefs just because we're raised in a certain culture, but at some point we have to step back and say, okay, where did these beliefs that are so common in our culture, where did they come from? How did they develop? And so it's 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 almost a, um, uh, a protection device. So if you understand better where these beliefs, where these philosophies came from, you can you can better uh, maybe stand back objectively and say, okay, I see how that's developed, and I see how that's kind of infiltrated our culture's thinking and maybe even my thinking, and I need to take a step back and say, well, no, that that's actually wrong. And so studying philosophy is a good way to be aware of where Western uh, thinking came from and how it developed and where it's where it's wrong, push back against it. Um, and I think it's it's also helpful in that same vein to know, you know, why our culture thinks the way it does if we're trying to reach our culture. You know, if we're trying mm. to right. um, reach our culture, if we're trying to come alongside our culture and, and correct it and um, tell it, tell our people in our culture what is really true, well, we need we need to understand where they're at, why they're thinking the way they're thinking. So, you know, when it comes to uh, being a pastor and trying to reach our culture, I think those two um, aspects of philosophy are, are very, very helpful. And just, just um, I guess the third thing I could say very briefly is that philosophy, a lot of philosophy has to do with, with just good argumentation. Um, I mean, I think Jesus was a great uh, logician. He was very, very logical. I mean, you... Uh, I've, I've said this before. I think you know, studying philosophy, studying what makes a good argument, studying logic, um, studying those type of things will help you um, understand the Bible just as much as studying um, Greek. You know, learning hmm. the original languages will help you understand wow. the Bible better. I think studying philosophy and logic will help you understand the Bible just as much because uh, Jesus makes good, solid arguments. Um, and he's a, he was a master logician. So studying logic and understanding how how arguments are put together, premise one, premise two, conclusion, syllogisms, you know, just understanding how to think better, which is what philosophy helps you do, um, is just good uh, in life generally. Yeah, the uh, Dr. Geisler wrote a wonderful book called The Apologetics of Jesus, and he goes through and shows how Jesus really was uh, very good at arguments and uh, logic and spotting fallacies and all of that. So kind of a, it's refreshing to see uh, Jesus kind of in that light because it's something that's, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I know for me growing up uh, in the church, it was looked at as, uh, you know, doing that science, science. It was looked at as just very suspicious uh, you know, Satan put the dinosaurs in the bones, to, uh, you know, in the ground to trick us type of thing. And so to be able to see, you know, Jesus in that light using apologetics, using um, logic, and that is, um, this really gives you a whole new deeper appreciation, I think, for the things of God. Most definitely. And, you know, a lot of times uh, folks think of Jesus more about his maybe his emotions or his way with people and I don't want to belittle that either that was you know yeah. he was incredibly great with people and loving and sometimes we we have this misconception of being logical or making good arguments as kind of being cold and 
and harsh and non-personal. But, you know, yeah, it can be that way, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love Schaefer, because I, I see in Schaefer somebody who is very logical, but at the same time very loving. And, of course, you know, the ultimate example of is, is Jesus. I mean, you see him um, arguing with the Pharisees, let's say, and he, he argues with them. He, he loves them. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to protect his own flock from their false teaching. So, he yeah, he gets kind of feisty sometimes. He gets worked up, rightfully so, so righteous anger towards the, the Pharisees who are, are misguiding people. But in that process of protecting his sheep, he makes good arguments against the Pharisees and and uh, corrects them with good logic. That's right. Very good. Well, let's uh, let's kind of I guess get into a little bit of our uh, of the topic. I know you'd you'd wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the movie Interstellar. I've heard a lot about it, but I've not seen the movie yet. So I know you. Oh, you uh, haven't. Were able to? No, I have. I'm not seen that. I've heard about it. Everyone tells me to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I need to, but uh, you you were able to, I guess, come up with some pretty amazing observations. It sounds like. Well, I, I'm I think so, but <laughs> I guess I'll let your you and your listeners be the judge of that. But I I'm a huge movie buff. I I love movies. I just it's just one thing that I really enjoy. Um, it's my entertainment. I'm not big into sports. Um, I'm not big in some other things, but you know I really enjoy watching movies. I think they're just great stories. I mean, movies are just our modern way of telling stories. We all love a good story. Um, so I, I, mean, I just I just really enjoy watching. I don't watch much TV, but really enjoy watching movies. But yeah, Interstellar, I was so excited to see it, and I did enjoy it. I thought it was a very entertaining movie, and and uh, it was it was billed, if you might remember. I guess it's been out for, what, a year, a year or so now? But it was billed when it first came out as being like the new uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. It was being compared with um, Stanley Kubrick's classic from the 60s, 2001 Space Odyssey. And so that really, that being one of my favorite movies of all time, um, that really you know sparked my interest to go and, and see uh, Interstellar. Now, now this, I don't. Go ahead. Is this is it sci-fi? Is that kind of the genre? Yeah, I, yeah, you could you would call it that. Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. It's very it's very drama, but yeah, sci-fi plays a part in. It. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, you're on the right track. Um, so I was very keen to go see it, and I enjoyed it. I don't think it I don't think it deserves to be put in the same category as 2001: Space Odyssey, but it was a good movie. But what what caught my interest uh, in the movie was the was the dichotomy that they presented in the movie. Um, this this dichotomy was between science and love. It was Ooh. between uh, science and love, and I found that very, very fascinating because um, it has to do with a lot of the things that uh, are on my mind in terms of of research and, and the things that I write about. I, I, I tell people a lot of times that my research interests are kind of a, a blend of theology, uh, philosophy, and ethics. Those three things kind of wrapped up in one. And so um, to see Interstellar portray in, 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 the, in the voice of the characters in the movie, 
um, this dichotomy between science and love was just was just fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I like to say I've had I've had a lot of friends tell me, man, you gotta go, you gotta go see this movie. So, what were the, some of the things I guess that stuck out to you? I know you bring up the issue of love. Um, how, how do they how do they portray that, and how do they? Uh, you said it seemed to be like a false dichotomy. Was that what you said about between love and science? Yeah, well, it was interesting. You know, this movie was um, was done by Christopher uh, Nolan. Okay, so this this is a big right. a big a movie. I mean, Christopher Nolan is one of the biggest names out there in Hollywood with oh um, uh, the Batman movies and Inception and stuff and such. So he's got quite the following. So this this movie was was reaching you know quite a large audience, and he's he's pretty philosophical minded. But I think, uh, and I just watched it here on on a clip on YouTube here just about an hour ago to refresh my memory, but I. I believe, you know, and every movie has this. There's there's somewhere in the movie where the the writer, director, you know, the person who's really behind the movie um uses a character in the movie to kind of get their message across. You know, they're trying to say every good movie's trying to say something. They they've got an agenda. And I don't blame them for that. I think entertainment is a great way to um uh communicate your beliefs, your agenda, your mission statement, your propaganda, I mean, whatever it is you're trying to get across to culture, to other people, I think using entertainment as a vehicle for that is is is, is great. It's it's been done with art and music for for uh, thousands of years. And we're doing it through movies. But anyway, I think you see um the main message of the movie kind of right in the middle and it's you hear it, you see it through the mouth of Anne Hathaway's character. Um, I, I forget the name of her character in the movie, but everybody knows Anne Hathaway. She plays one of the main characters, and right in the middle of the movie, she gives this little speech, and it's a very dramatic moment. It's, it lasts about two minutes. She's um, teary-eyed, and it, it's a very dramatic speech. And I think, I think we're supposed to see in her little speech kind of the, the the moral of the story or the main message that the movie is trying to get across. And uh, she goes on and gives her a speech about love. And it's interesting what she says about love. She, she goes on to explain that uh, love is real. Uh, love isn't something that we just invented, that love is, is something that's real. And it, uh, it transcends space and time. And yeah, maybe we don't fully understand it. Maybe it's Maybe it's something that's still kind of out of our grasp, so to speak, intellectually, but it's 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 there and it's real and it transcends space and time and it it guides us and it directs us and we should follow love because it's a it's a real thing, and um, she makes this plea that um, they're in a spaceship, by the way, and they're trying to decide where to go. There's they have a few different options, and uh, she wants to go um, to one of these options. And she feels like she's being led by love, and she goes. She makes a speech that love is, is a is a real thing, and and it should guide us. We should listen to it. Um, now, the pushback comes right away, and the pushback comes from another main character in the movie, and that's Matthew McConaughey, um, which probably arguably is the is the main character of the movie. And Matthew McConaughey, he pushes back against that. Matthew McConaughey, he plays the 
the voice of science, so to speak. And he says, well, that's not that's not very scientific. You know, that's not we've got to we've got to follow the the cold hard facts here. We've got to follow um, the evidence. So we've got to choose the location where we're going to go to next in our spaceship based off of the the facts. And so he dismisses her uh, speech and her desire to be led by uh, love. Well, as you can imagine, um, the story progresses, and I, I don't want to give it away for anybody, especially you, since you haven't seen it yet. But <laughs> the, uh, the movie now, progresses. Sure. <laughs> you want to go watch it now after this? Yeah, I do. But yep. the movie progresses, and lo and behold, Matthew McConaughey—he's the main character. He discovers that she was right. She discover—he—I'm sorry—he discovers that Anne Hathaway's character was correct, that love is real, that love um, isn't something we just invented, that love actually does transcend space and time, that it is something that should guide us. Because it, um, what Matthew McConaughey basically says, after after she gives her little speech, he says that, no, love is just a, a social thing, it's just as like a... Uh, I don't know if he uses the exact phrase, but something to the effect of it's a it's a social construct. Um, it's only valuable for social or society, the benefit of society. In other words, he doesn't say this explicitly, but um, he gives the normal a scientific understanding of love, and that hey, you know the only reason the parents love their children is because that's what evolution, evolution nature selected. I mean, the nature wouldn't select people that didn't love their children because their genes wouldn't get passed on. Um, wow. So love is just a chemical reaction. We love our children because that's what nature selected. That's what led to greater chances for uh, reproduction, greater chances for passing on our genes. Um, so love is just a chemical reaction, an accidental chemical reaction that nature selected for. Same thing about romantic love. I mean, we love the um, men and women fall in love and want to be together uh, physically, and we only call that love. We, you know, we have Valentine's Day and we write poems and stuff. But, you know, scientifically, science would say that's just a chemical reaction that, again, nature selected because you know people who didn't want to have sex wouldn't reproduce and pass on their genes. And so, you know, what Matthew McConaughey ends up saying is he pushes back against her little tirade about love, saying that's not very scientific. Love is just a social construct that, you know, came about, in effect, accidentally, um, and that's the sign. And we shouldn't we shouldn't let that guide us. We should let the facts and um, the evidence guide us. Well, lo and behold, the the rest of the movie is his character finding out that love, in fact, is real, and love should guide us, and love does transcend space and time. But here's the thing, and this is where this is where I cry foul. Um, of course, I believe, I I agree with Anne Hathaway's character, without a doubt. I believe that love is real. But in the context of the movie, where God is never mentioned, God is never brought up, um, the idea of God is, 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 or anything like God, is is that that whole topic is never broached at all. So within the context of the movie you are to assume that there is no god. So 
in that it assuming that assuming there is no god i would i would side with matthew mcconaughey no such thing as love i i think you'd have to i don't know i don't think i don't think there's any way to escape that position i mean i know folks wow. try and that's part of you know one of my areas of of research and writing you know folks try to escape that conclusion of um, materialistic physical reductionism. They try to escape the conclusion, and they they cry out. And see, this is where I think the tension is. They cry out. They know that love is real, but within um, a scientific atheism, within a a completely naturalistic explanation of of the universe, I, I don't see how you can come to the conclusion that love is real. So if we... If God doesn't exist and evolution is true, I, I would side with Matthew McConaughey. That love is just an an, an, a, an accident of of nature that nature selected for because it led to greater chances of uh, reproduction and survival. Wow. And I guess it's one of those things where, yeah, you look at it and you kind of, you know that's not the way. I guess it really is just blood-based. Somewhat, I guess, on our experiences, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's why that's why I side with with Anne Hathaway. So, you know, I side with her character that love is real, and I think I think most of us do. I mean, I think most of us who, like you said, we experience love, and uh, maybe we <laughs> in our science classes or we put on our science hat and we. We might say to ourselves, well, it's just a chemical reaction. But then we go out and we experience life and we fall in love or we have children and we love them. We think, man, there's got to be something more to this than just a chemical reaction. You know, you fall in love and you say, well, um, there's got to be more to this than just the physical experience of, of sex. There's something deeper here. And I think, I think as humans, we recognize that. And so, you know, I... I, I see Anne Hathaway's character and I feel for her. Um, or I feel for people like that because they're screaming out, love is real, but yet they have no explanation for it. And so there's this yeah. incredible tension where you've got this um, desire and belief and it's almost self-evident. You know, Use the terminology that's used in our own Declaration of, in- of Independence. There's these things that seem to be so true, they're self-evident, and and one of them is that that love is real. That I really do love somebody. That it's not just a physical, um, chemical reaction thing. That I, I truly do love someone. So we we scream, our culture screams and cries out um, that love is real. But yet at the same time, there's there's no explanation for it. There's in fact um, what's being uh, taught. What we're being taught is that love isn't real. So you see there's a strange tension as I see it in our culture between you know the science the scientific world telling us that love isn't real but at the same time our heart is crying out yeah. yes it is yes it is and so yeah but without an explanation where do you go from there and I think this movie captures it really well the reason I cry foul is it it leaves you hanging there okay so love is real but you haven't explained how it could be real how how could <laughs> right. it be real if you know we come from an impersonal um random process of evolution how how could love be real in that scenario i 
I think that's a good point, and I and I, I like how you bring that up. I, I remember um, reading something with Richard Dawkins, and and the same kind of thing, right? It's natural selection uh, that can explain everything, uh, and what you have is natural selection, literally um, tricking people to believe in the existence of God, because somehow that makes the species better. Uh, and I guess it'd be the same kind of thing with love, right? Where literally uh, natural selection is just um, it's tricking us or it's giving us the illusion that these things are good. And, and even though it's not, but it makes things better uh, in our, in our culture, in our society. Yeah. Kind of the same, same, same kind of thing. Exactly right. I mean, I, I, I have quotes from going all the way back to Charles Darwin, who, who virtually said exactly what you just said, that, you know, the reason our social, um, relationships developed into what they are today is because that's what nature selected. That's what that's what was most um, uh, most likely, most um, uh, going to result in greater chances for reproduction and um, survival. Are, are these yeah, social relationships and these feelings that we have of love? It just seems like a hard view to falsify, you know. I mean, if if the thing that would disprove it is that it's 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 actually tricking us to believe theism, it it's, seems kind of like a hard beat to falsify. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and and you can, I mean, I'm sure you can can see where this is going with 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 all of this. I mean, where where, where I would take this conversation next is to say, you know, to a character or even our culture. A character like Anne Hathaway's, or our culture at large, which is is crying out for love to be real, but without an explanation for it. And I think that's where, as Christians, we can say, look, if if God is really there, and if God is 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 the one who created us, then that that provides a the the best explanation for love to exist. I mean, if God is there. And he's a personal God, and he created us to be personal uh, beings, to have personalities, to have relationships. I mean, that's what personality is all about. Personhood is all about um, having different personalities, falling in love, having relationships with each other and with God. Then love isn't an accident. Love is, in fact, love is um, part of the foundation uh, of the universe. And see... And I think what Anne, what Anne Hathaway's character is getting to is absolutely correct, that love does transcend space and time. And the reason it can transcend space and time is because, because love ultimately comes from God, who, tr- who does transcend space and time. You think of love being part of the foundation of reality because reality flows from the Trinity, and for all eternity past, there have there have been three persons who have had loving relationships. I mean, they've they've loved one another within the Trinity for all eternity past. And so, you know, Christian theism and particularly Trinitarian theism provides a great explanation for why love does exist, why love is real, why love does transcend space and time. No, I, I've heard some uh, Christians use that argument against, um, like, Islam, for example, Unitarianism. Um, how, do you think that works, 
or um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's one of the, I don't know if you want to call it advantages, but I think that's one of the, when you when you compare um, uh, Islam and Christianity, I think that's one of the, the huge um, pluses on the side of Christianity and that our God is a is a trinity. I mean, some people look at that and think of that as a negative thing that it's oh it's oh, it's really confusing. How can there be uh one being and uh, uh three persons, uh one nature and, and three persons. It seems like a confusing thing and sometimes Christians are even ashamed of it because it's it's hard to explain and it's confusing. But if you step back sure. at it if you step back and look at it philosophically, I think it's a it's a huge plus. I mean, it explains so much. Not only does it explain help explain love as I just did, but it also helps explain what the Greek philosophers struggled with for centuries, and that is the problem of the one and the many. How can there be one and many at the same time? The problem of one um, unity and diversity. Um, how come how can being be one? Yet at the same time, we see a diversity of things in the universe, um, in our world. Right. How, how, how can there be one being, or how can being be one, but at the same time diverse? And I think, again, um, and this is what the early Christian fathers, the early Christian philosophers in the first couple centuries, A.D., they realized, hey, you know what? This trinity that we've that we see communicated in the New Testament this trinity, if this was real, of course they believed it was real and true, this actually explains what the Greek philosophers have been struggling with for for uh, centuries. So the Greek philosophers were asking some of the right questions, and the, the early church fathers realized, hey, we've got the answer. We've got, and, and, this, and, and obviously they emboldened their faith even the more, because now they realized this... This is, you know, this is true, and this helps explain reality as we experience it. Right, right. Wow, that's that's that is that is some good stuff. Yeah, I didn't know the movie went. You could, you know, you could draw all that from the movie. That is really, really <laughs> something. <laughs> I'll let you watch let me, it. Me, you can be the judge. Yeah, let me give the number out real quick. Uh, if anybody wants to call and uh, have a chat here, and it's. Uh, 760 542 3907. 760 542 3907. Did you want to. Are you, are you wrapping it up there with the movie, or did you want to talk about the moral argument a little bit, or where did you want yeah, to go? Yeah, we sure can. Yeah. Um, no, I'd be happy to move on to the, the moral argument if you like. Yeah, let's do this. Let me go ahead and uh, we'll take a uh, break for a couple minutes, give people a chance they want to call in and uh, come back and kind of reset and go with the uh, talk a little bit about the moral argument. So the number to call is, again, at 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We'll be right back. Having talked about expositional preaching, I don't want people to think it doesn't matter what you're actually saying. That the only thing that matters is that you're opening the Bible, reading it, and claiming you're explaining it. No, I want to kind of nail down the product as well. I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually consistent with what is in the Bible. Because the Bible has very specific content. God speaks through his word to reveal himself to us. 
then that means we can get it wrong. So in our preaching and in our teaching in our churches, we want to make sure and get it right. The term biblical theology can be used in two ways, either theology that's biblical, what some people sometimes call systematic theology, or uh, biblical theology, which is a, a method of studying the scriptures as one story culminating in the person work of Christ. God has revealed himself progressively through scripture. So there's a picture being built up through thousands of years of God's interaction with his people, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing how all God's purposes come together and focus in Christ. It's as we have a sense of the, of the whole of Scripture that we're able to rightly then sort of divide and apply the parts of Scripture and to live more consistently uh, in God's will and uh, to live more consistently uh, by His grace. I think it's extremely important for pastors to know how the entire story of the Bible fits together. So that any particular text that they're looking at, uh, they not only understand that the immediate meaning of that text, they understand how it fits into the whole. That prevents us from, from doing all sorts of terrible things to Scripture, like ripping things out of context, misapplying, uh, making false promises. So biblical theology is understanding these great themes through the Scripture that God has developed in history. Uh, through the history of Israel and then in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the apostles that's recorded in the rest of the New Testament and teaching those things clearly in our, our preaching and believing them ourselves. What is something that computers and humans have in common which constantly needs upgrading in computers but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, folks, and we are back, and our guest is uh, Adam Johnson, and uh, we're talking about all kinds of different things today, talking about movies and the moral argument for God's existence, all kind of good stuff. So, uh, Adam, you there? Yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. So what is the moral argument for uh, God's existence? I know the problem of evil seems to be the biggest reason uh, a lot of people give for rejecting Christianity. Mm. Uh, how does how does the moral argument kind of uh, give us some grounds uh, in arguing for the existence of God? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Well, we've done it a little bit already. I mean, we've done it um, using a movie, specifically talking about uh, love. You know, I think you know what our discussion so far has really centered around the moral argument maybe we haven't laid it out in a in a nice concise syllogism with premises but really what we've done is 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 made a 
type of moral argument for God, just just what we've talked about so far. But let me do that. Let me lay it out in a nice, um, easy, uh, simple syllogism with some premises and then a conclusion so um, we can kind of get our, our minds uh, wrapped around it. But it it's simply like this. Um, you could start out with uh, premise one and say that uh, morality is objective. And uh, we've kind of said that already in our discussion. We've said uh, love. We've talked about love. And uh, we would say that love is objective in the sense that love is real. Just just exactly what Anne Hathaway's character is saying. That love, is, love isn't something we just invented. Love isn't something that is just in our minds. That love is a real thing. And uh, the moral argument for God um, starts out right there with premise number one. Morality, whether you want to call it love or morality, morals are real. They're they're not just our subjective preferences. They're not just our opinions. They're not just what we um, feel brings us pleasure or prevents pain. They're they're real objective things. It's it's objectively uh, real. So, for example, you could say, you know. Um, Something in is some, somebody puts something in the water tomorrow, and we all wake up thinking that oh I don't know whatever rape is is okay tomorrow. We wake up and all of us think that. Well, does that make since we all think that tomorrow, does that mean that rape becomes okay? Well, of course not. Uh, I, I think you know we can easily see that even if everybody would believe that, um, that doesn't make it right. So there, there's there's something beyond our subjective opinions, um, and that's what we would call moral, um, objective morality. That morality is something real, and it's um, it's separate from our our own subjective opinions. So that's premise number one. Again, simply morality, love is objectively real. Premise number two would be. Um, that obje- this objective morality is best explained by theism. So, you know, you can explain it simply that if there's an objective moral law, there's got to be an objective uh, moral law giver. Uh, if, if there's um, objective moral truths, uh, objective moral laws out there, somebody had to have, have written those laws. They had to have come from somewhere. And, you know, the, the argument is made here, uh, This again, this is premise number two, that um, morality is intrinsically personal. I mean, the reason why we have morality is because we're persons. Rocks don't have morality. They're not persons. We would say that animals don't have morality um, that, because they're not persons. Um, but humans, we would say human beings, we, are, we have personhood. And therefore, morality is intrinsically uh, personal. It has to do with persons. Um, and so part of premise two here would just be saying that if uh, if morality does exist, then it's, uh, it's best expl- its existence is best explained by there being a personal God who um, where these moral laws came from. And then the the third one, the third, think of a syllogism now, premise one, premise two. Our conclusion then is, therefore, uh, there's good reason to think that God exists. Uh, there's good reason to think that theism is true. 
so that's that's the argument in a nutshell. That's good, and, and uh, you, you kind of can see the power and the and the force of the argument. Um, what are maybe what are some of the uh, common objections to the argument once it's it's given? Well, in the most recent past, as you can imagine, the 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 biggest pushback was with premise one. And again, premise one is that morality is objectively real. Um, and you can imagine why this premise was the one that was attacked the most. Um, and that's because of the relativism, postmodernism, that is so prevalent in our culture. I mean, um, many, many folks just have this uh, mistaken belief that morality is relative. Um, now, if you if, if you push them correctly, if you push them um, the right way, if you push back against that idea, I think most people will will get pressed into a corner and they'll they'll admit um, eventually that that morality is objectively real, but they they don't they don't think that. I mean, there's so much um, moral relativity in our culture. That that usually, in, at least in the most recent past, has been the 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 main premise that has been pushed back on it, pushed back against on, which is that morality is is objectively real. But it's interesting, um, and maybe this is the um, the winds of change. I'm not sure, but it it seems that um, premise number two is becoming uh, more under attack and um and this is this is a big area of 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 mine that I like to to read in research and write about um because it, it's interesting I'll I'll just I'll just put out there what what some folks have said and um you know some folks have said this this whole um relativism postmodernism is is kind of on the way out. I mean, it's still big in our culture, but in terms of you know maybe in the academic world, among right. um, key intellectuals, that, that that they're starting to move on to on to the next thing. Um, whether that's true or not, I mean, you, you can debate that till the cows come home. I mean, it's it's hard to know what movement is going to be the next big movement. I mean, it's it's hard to know. Which one's really going to take on and 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 go and be able to sway the culture at large? But there does seem to be a um, a, a movement, especially in the scientific world, uh, the scientific side of things, that is really pushing hard back against postmodernism. That's really pushing hard back against uh, moral relativism. Now, this is a fascinating thing to look into, a fascinating thing to follow um, in the in the academic world. Because I mean, if you think about it, postmodernism really came from more of the humanities side of things, and it um, and it, it definitely is where it took hold. You think of like literature departments, um, English departments, um, history departments. I mean that's where postmodernism and this whole idea of relativism really really took hold and um the 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 postmodern 
movement um, was really, you know, a lot of it had to do with with criticizing uh, science, criticizing modernism, and you know, postmoderns they don't they don't um, uh, they they're going to be suspicious of anybody who thinks they know the right answer. <laughs> So right. you know, postmoderns don't like Christianity because you know we think we know what's true. Uh, we we claim to know uh, reality. We claim to know what's what's really true. So we take a stand for what we think is true, and they read into that a power play. And they they would say, oh, you're just being authoritative. You're being uh, you're just trying to um, uh, make a power play on us. Um, and so they 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 are very suspicious against Christianity. Well, postmoderns are are also very suspicious against um science in a large regard because they see science scientists the same way. Oh you scientists, you claim to know everything, you claim to know what's really true, you claim to be an authority here and and so you know, postmodernism has a, a similar skepticism towards towards science as well. Well, um you see in the scienti- scientific world now, some pushback. The scientists, um, especially in the scientific, you know, academic realm, they're pushing back against um, postmodernism. They're pushing back against moral relativism, and uh, they're just. I think at an academic and an intellectual level at our universities and stuff and such, I think uh, folks are seeing just how really um, how postmodernism just doesn't hold water. It just, it just doesn't work. It's self-referentially incoherent. It just doesn't make sense. It can't. It, it doesn't make sense intellectually, and it, it's not livable. You can't live in a society of moral relativism. I mean, laws uh, fall apart. I mean, if everybody um, does their can do their own thing, whatever they think is true for them, whatever they think is right, it's just, it's just not livable. And so you see this pushback. Um, from the scientific world against postmodernism, against uh, moral relativism, and what, where that has moved the conversation, and again, it's it's always hard to know where things are going, but some people right. have said, you know, we're 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 possibly moving on past postmodernism into something else, something um, different, uh, maybe even a, a new type of modernism or a new type of uh, enlightenment that is going to be much more, you know, scientific. And you think about things like uh, the Humanist uh, Manifesto 2000 and um, those type of things where, where uh, humanists and scientists are, are standing up and pushing back against moral relativism. And so let me just give you an example. Uh, I feel like I'm going down a rabbit trail, but just a real practical oh, example. Uh, you have... Uh, Sam Harris and his book, uh, The Moral Landscape. Right. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, perfect case in point. Here you have a neurosurgeon, uh, somebody from the uh, intellectual, um, definitely seen as an intellectual in our culture, from the scientific side of things. He's pushing back against moral relativism, and he's coming out and he's saying, no, morality is objective. He's saying, you know, so he he doesn't have a problem with premise one. So where in the right. past a lot of our a lot of our emphasis has been 
on premise number one are arguing against moral relativism. Now there's kind of this new wave coming out um, of people agreeing with us, saying, yeah, morality is objective. Um, I mean, you see it in Anne Hathaway's character maybe in that movie. You know, it always starts in the intellectual academic realm, but then it works its way down to the culture through art and entertainment. So maybe you're seeing these things come now down through the movies, down to the culture at large. But it's starting with intellectuals in the academic realm and our universities and institutions with folks like Sam Harris, who is arguing from a scientific perspective that, yeah, um, morality is real, morality is objective. Um, and so now it's kind of moved the, the conversation, it's moved the, fo- the focus of the moral argument maybe to more on premise two, where, okay, if morality is objective, then what's the best explanation for that? And of course, this is where you know somebody like Sam Harris and I would disagree. So we might agree on premise one. We might both say that morality is objective, it's real, um, but then we would have to um, concentrate on premise two. That is, what's the best explanation then for um, objective morality? What's the best explanation for how it got here, where it comes from, how can it exist? So how I'm just curious how how exactly does does Harris and them because it's like you say I mean I know one time the uh, premise one was the one that um, was denied a lot I don't I, I guess I still have a hard time trying to wrap my brain how do they get a, a, an objective morality without grounding it in theism some type of theism Yeah well you know what Sam Harris he's um, he's looking at it, and he would he despises this term. Um, but what he's been accused of, you know, I probably wouldn't use this term either. I don't want to put, you know, words in people's mouths, and so I would want to, you know, interact with Sam Harris, you know, using uh, his terminology and try to, you know, argue with him with what he's saying. I I, I try to shy away from just labeling somebody because oftentimes when um, we label somebody, we think we've we've defeated them just because we've given them a label. But sure. where you know you don't understand what I'm saying. So I preface that um I preface what I'm about to say with that little explanation. But what what some people have labeled Sam Sam Harris with is uh consequentialism, which is that um kind of a utilitarian form of, of morality where um we're just going to judge what's right or wrong based on how it um, on on the consequences for society. So, in other words, you know, classic utilitarianism that we're going to measure, we're going to determine what's right or wrong based on um, if it accomplishes uh, good things for us or good things for society. I mean, you can measure it different ways. You can say. Okay, is this activity um, going to bring me uh, more pleasure, or is it going to um, eliminate some pain? If so, then it, then it's then it's good. It's objectively good, um, and not just pleasure and pain in the hedonistic sense. You know, don't read into you know Mill and Bentham and and the utilitarians of the 1800s. They were much more sophisticated than just yeah, you know 
this hedonistic thing brings me pleasure, therefore it's good. No, they were talking about, you know, what's good overall for a society. So looking at, um, and that's exactly what Sam Harris is doing. He's saying that we can use science, um, and again, he's a neuroscientist, so he's talking about studying the brain, studying, um, using, sci- using science to um, study the brain and what what most would what most brings about uh human flourishing what most brings about um good for a person or society and whatever those things are though that is what we say is morally good so in that sense he's taken a very very scientific approach um but he is i mean you can see how he's he's using science he's He's very scientific oriented, but in that sense, he's he's making a, a case for objective morality that these are those these things, what's good for humans and what's bad for humans, in terms of flourishing, is objectively true, and and using that, and really taking that and pushing back against moral relativism. So mm-hmm. in one sense, right. I, can, I, I can cheer him on. You know, I can get in his corner and I can say, you know, go, you're doing great. You know, you're, <laughs> you're pushing back against moral relativism. I, I'm with you um, on right. that. Right. But then you take a step back and you say, okay, now, now you and I need to talk <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think your your moral, um, you know, your objective moral morality has legs to stand on. Yeah, but see, that's, that's where that's I think right. the congrega- conversation needs to go. That's where I think it's it's going to go is is are those type of interactions. Yeah, how do you think that? How would that interaction play out between Sam Harris and the theist? What do you? How, how do you think that would go? Well, the biggest question that I would have, um, you know, in in for a person. You know, like Sam Harris or somebody who's 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 read Sam Harris's moral landscape is, you know, why should we value human flourishing in the first place? I mean, what is it about humans on a strictly materialism, um, physical reductionism, a completely material world view of the universe, and it, we came from an impersonal source, um, time plus chance got us to be who we are, what we are, why why should we value human flourishing? I mean, what is what is more valuable about human flourishing? What makes human flourishing more valuable than um, caterp- the flourishing of caterpillars? Right. You know, what makes human flourishing, why, why is that a good thing? Why is that valuable? For society to flourish, for human society to flourish, I mean, what what makes us, you know, a collocation of atoms, you know, we're just a, a certain random, accidental. Ultimately, I mean, in, in his worldview, ultimately we're just a random accidental collocation of atoms. What makes our random combination of atoms more valuable than a um, an accidental random combination of atoms that make up a rock or a tree or, right. or a caterpillar. I mean, what? why is it that, you know, we value human flourishing in the first place? Because I think, I mean, I think there's some merit. I mean, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to hang my, 
ethics hat exclusively on you know a utilitarian approach but i think i think it's just common sense to you know bring some of those things into the equation to say okay i'm unsure what to do here ethically i don't know what the right decision is um to do here i'm struggling with something to think through what are the consequences going to be i mean i think that's just normal i think that's natural i think aristotle um did i mean that's that that's one of aristotle's biggest things is what what is human flourishing what 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 is um, what is going to most lead to human flourishing and so you step back and you look at you know okay boy i see these actions over here these aren't leading to a well ordered life these actions that i see people doing are are destroying their life so th- those right. things can't be good so i think and this goes into a, a bigger conversation this goes into you know natural law and and god i think one of the reasons why utilitarianism and um even what's what sam harris is tapping into is the created order i mean you go all the way back to the book of proverbs and we can learn things from the ant because because the way that god has created this universe we we can as human beings look at the way things are we can look at our human nature we can even use science to help us understand what is good for the human body what is good for human society and i think all we're doing is we're studying god's creation and from that we can learn we can certainly learn some moral principles um this takes us into a different conversation about natural law but i think in other words what i'm saying is i think theism um provides an explanation for exactly what Sam Harris is doing. I think what Sam right. Harris is doing fits under the umbrella perfectly of theism. But standing alone, what Sam Harris is trying to do, I don't think can can stand with legs. I don't think it does have legs to stand on because again my question is why in a completely material universe where we've just come from an impersonal source plus time plus chance, why why value human for flourishing in the first place? Maybe, maybe we can move to that um that second conversation too. Um you you have a, a section here uh possibly talking about some of the universal uh do universal and moral obligations uh exist. I know we've kinda hit on that. Uh did did you want to say anything else on that or yeah, yeah, we sure could. I mean, one of the things that I'm I'm writing on right now is is um and doing some research on is this is the natural law. And um some of your listeners might be aware that that natural law has a, a very long history, a very colored history, and um actually I wish we could we could move away from the term because the term natural law has been used and abused by uh, so many different um, ideologies that I, I wish we could. I wish we could just all agree on a new term and start using it tomorrow. But it's since it has been a term that's been around for so long, I, I think it's just a term that we're kind of stuck with. So the important thing to do whenever we use the term natural law is is define, 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 and, and make it make it very clear what we mean when we when we use the term natural law. Yeah, so kind of natural law, kind of, if we could break it down then, I guess, kind of, um, 
especially today with the whole issue with the the same-sex marriage, uh, one Mm. thing we see, I think, a lot is evangelicals a lot of times just don't seem to be able to um, argue this well in the public. How does natural law help with some of those some of those type of things? I think sometimes people think yeah. natural law means um, well, if it's done in nature, you know, like homosexual acts or whatever, then it's, it must be good. Exactly. See, that's that's part of the problem is is so many people have used natural law to mean different things. So what I would say when I when I use the term natural law, what I mean by that is um, moral precepts, moral principles that God built into His created order. Um, in other words, they are they are moral truths that that we can discover. We don't invent, we don't create, um, but moral truths that exist objectively and which we can discover by um, considering uh, creation, by considering um, our own human nature, by looking at God's creation. So in a sense, you can think of natural law almost as a general revelation. Um, for those you know of your listeners that are creations might be... Or, or I'm sorry, that are Christians might be familiar with the the distinction between special creation, or I'm sorry, special revelation and general revelation. So you can think of natural law as uh, those 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 moral precepts that God built into the fabric of the universe, and that that we can discover uh, through our reason. And in in addition to that, so a great example is the one I used already in Proverbs. So we can using our human reason. Uh, look at um, the ant and learn moral principles from the ant. Proverbs talks about how you know we shouldn't be lazy. We should be a hard worker. We should work with others. We should we should work well. There's moral precepts that we can learn about um, learn by looking at, at God's created order. In addition to that, um, God put on our hearts what we would say. Uh, the moral law. So not only do we see um, moral precepts in the created order as we observe it, kind of empirically almost, but there's um, what you could all almost call a moral intuition. The the moral ah. law, the Bible says, is written on our hearts. You think, think of Romans 2, verses 14 to 15. So we have this moral law written on our hearts. That's why that's why um even somebody who's never read a Bible, doesn't even never even heard of God, never even heard of Jesus Christ, or read the Bible, well they they can know uh they can really know moral truth. They can have tr- they can have correct true moral knowledge from those two sources, from the moral and information and written on their heart and the moral law that you see in the created order. Yeah, and that's that's a big confusion, I think, a lot of times, is this idea that we're saying atheists can't know morality or people can't know morality apart from the Bible. The Bible just doesn't teach that, right, as, as you're saying with Romans 2, etc. So I think we have to be careful also in giving the moral argument, making that distinction about, you know, what, what someone must read or believe 
compared to compared to what is how's how is the thing grounded? Exactly. That's that's the huge difference. I mean, you hit it you hit it squarely. It's the difference between epistemology and ontology. So I think I think unbelievers, I think non-Christians, I think you know, somebody who's never even heard of God or the Bible or Jesus Christ can know moral truth because of those two sources. Now, you know, as a Christian, I I fully believe in the fall. Um I believe that when, you know, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it uh it ruined us in a sense. I believe in total depravity in the sense that, you know, our ability, you know, because of the fall, our ability to 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 know moral truth, to see moral truth in creation and even even understand the moral truth written on our heart has been uh, severely impacted by the fall, but not eliminated. I think that's the key sure. that that theologians right. wrestle with is is the balance here. We we know it's still there. We know you know that fallen mankind can still have true moral knowledge. Just how much was it impacted by the fall? And you know theologians had debated that for centuries. But I think everybody agrees that to some extent. Um, you know, based off of Romans too, that people can, even fallen people, um, fallen mankind can know some truth about about morality. So going back to natural law, then um, we would say that yeah, maybe a, a good way to talk about it. I, I read an article just recently that said, you know, a good term that might hit it more. Um, that might hit home better with people is to use the term higher law. Okay. Because, Devin, what you said is exactly true. Sometimes in the past, people have used natural law to say, okay, whatever we see in nature, um, that must be okay. So, you know, even, even somebody like Hitler or Nietzsche would, you know, in a sense, make uh, a natural law argument saying, okay, I see that the strong um, dominate the weak, and that's what I see in nature, so that must be right. And, you know, that's that's a very distorted version of natural law. Um, but people have have characterized, um, people have, have seen natural law, um, associated natural law with that type of thinking. So this article that I read recently recommended the term higher law because it drives home the fact that this is a law that's above us. This is a law that we report to, so to speak. This is a law that's above our own opinions. It's above our subjective preferences. It's a it's a higher law. And this is a terminology oh. that uh, Martin Luther King used often uh, when he ah. was debating in the public square. When he was I mean he was a Christian Right, and he was he was trying to persuade society. He was trying to persuade our government to pass good laws. And um, I'll never forget, you know, his his letter from uh, his letter from a Birmingham jail. He he quoted Thomas Aquinas, and he's you know he, and he explained Thomas Aquinas was one of the heroes of natural law in history, so to speak. I'm probably the hero of natural law, but he, um, Martin Luther King uh, quoted Aquinas and gave him credit and said, "Look, 
we have some laws on the books in our country. Um, and he was obviously he was arguing for civil rights and such. He says, we have some laws uh, on the books, but they're not right. There's there's a higher law that, that these laws that we have on the books, these um, these governmental laws that we have in our country, they violate this higher law. And so they should be changed. And so Martin Luther King would um, – he would – he would look to this higher law, and he would um, call upon this higher law as as this as a reason why we should change some of the laws in our country. And I think rightfully so. I mean, it's the same reason why, you know, we could look at another country, maybe who uh, we think has some wrong laws, and um, look at them and say, no, I, I think, yet those are the laws in your country, but they're not. They're bad. They're not good laws because they violate something higher. They they violate the the uh, a higher law, the real moral law. And what what people do when they're making those type of arguments, they're making natural law arguments, whether they know it or not. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of how the was that was that kind of how the, the our our the founding fathers of the country um talked about uh, something i guess similar with that with um rights kind of from god right exactly yeah we hold these truths to be self evident you know these are things that we just we don't they don't need to be argued we just know them and then they went on to talk about these inalienable rights um where do these rights come from i mean um to them, this was not that they were all Christians, but they under they had this concept of a higher law um, that there's a, an objective law which governs us. Now they might have disagreed, and I think this is key. They might have disagreed as to the source of that objective law, but the reason that they could come together and write our, you know, constitution and put together our government was because they they agreed on the fact that there was such a thing. They agreed on right. the fact that there was such a thing as a higher moral law that we're accountable to. And that's exactly what our our founding fathers based our, our government on. So how how should Christians argue the issue, for example, of, of same-sex marriage? I mean, I know there's, there's this kind of two fronts where – and they, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive at all. But I mean, in the church, I think, um, and you know, as as a pastor, I'm sure you run into this. Um, Protestants, the Bible is our authority, sola scriptura, etc. Yeah. So we can we can appeal to well, what does what does the scripture say? So mm-hmm. when we're out in the public square and you're having these, you know, our listeners are having these conversations at work, uh, etc. What, how do, what's the best way to to approach this this topic? Just in your your opinion. Yeah, I mean, it it's it um it's going to vary. I mean, you can you can take it from, I guess you can approach it from two different angles. Just in trying to answer your question, you can right. you can ask the question: What is a good argument? You know, is it valid? Is it um is it is it a good um, strong argument. Uh, the other question is: Is it an effective argument? <laughs> and this is where mm. you know sometimes where the the ancients would talk about rhetoric. They might say, "Well, yeah, you have a good argument, but it's it's not really influencing anybody." So your argument might be sound, 
uh, it might be a valid argument, but it's not really effective in the public square, maybe because of the way that you're communicating it or your attitude, but something about it um, is not being effective. So, you know, you can try to judge an argument um, on those two levels. Here's here's one thing that I've found useful in, in talking to people. Um, you know, I, 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 I guess I... I want them to first agree with me. I want I want them to first agree with me and um here's what I want. I want them to see that morality is something beyond our own personal preferences. Mm-hmm. I think that if if we can't establish that, we're never going to get anywhere. Otherwise, right. it's just going to be Somebody saying, no, my personal preference is that um, homosexuality is moral, and your personal preference is that it is immoral. And so if, if, that's, if, if, if morality is just personal preferences, and if, if, if the person you're talking with thinks that, then you're not going to get anywhere. Because all they're going to think in their minds is, you know, we're just disagreeing on preferences. Um, so I, th- I think what, where I try to take people at least to is just to the um, um, to the idea that there's got to be something beyond us that's going to judge here. There's 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 got to be a, a moral a higher law, a higher um, object of morality that's going to. And here's how I do it. Here's how I often um, have conversations with people. I say, look, we we all have a lot of desires. Um, you know, maybe we're born with certain desires. Maybe we develop these desires over time. Um, who knows? I mean, we can have that conversation too. But I think we'd all agree that we have uh, certain desires. And I think we would all agree that not all of our desires are good desires. You know, sometimes I have a desire to, you know, punch somebody in the nose because I'm upset with them. Um <laughs> You know, when I was younger, I maybe I had I had a desire to take things from other people when I wanted them. Um, sometimes we have a desire to to judge others because that makes us feel better about ourselves. And so, you know, we have desires. We have all sorts of desires. We have desires to to love um, other people. We have desires to be in relationship and have good friends. We have desires to eat food. Um, so we have all sorts of desires, and I think. I think what we, have, what we have to step back and say, well, you know, just because we desire something doesn't necessarily mean it's something we should do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a good desire. I mean, most people um, desire to be the center of attention. Um, now, right. is that a good desire? Well, probably not. And so where I tr- the path I try to take people down is to realize and agree with me that just because we have a desire to do something doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. And I mean, you can probably see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, I acknowledge maybe that they have um, desires for the same gender. Um, And so I would, you know, my conversation with them would go something um, to this effect. I acknowledge that you have that desire, but just because you have that desire doesn't necessarily mean it's a, first of all it's a good desire or it's a desire that should be acted upon. I mean, let's face it, we we all have various 
different types of sexual desires. I mean, uh, most men um, have a desire to be with um, uh, many women. And and I think most Mm. would recognize that that's not necessarily a good desire. That desire shouldn't be acted upon. Uh, You know, especially their spouse wouldn't think that that would be a good desire to act upon. So, you know, we have these desires and... You know, just because somebody has a desire doesn't necessarily mean it's good and should be acted upon. So that's 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 the route where I start down with folks. Okay, okay. Well, and that and that helps. And uh, of course, unfortunately, our enemy, the clock, is telling us we're about out of time. But uh, <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's that's some good kind of some good guidelines. What are some some books for some people, uh, for, for new people interested in learning a little bit more about natural law and, and some of the things you've been talking about? What are some, maybe some uh, beginners and then maybe some more of an intermediate stage? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let me think about that in the background while I wrap up that conversation. You know, where, where I would go with that um person then is just to, the next step would be, okay, how do we know what desires are right and what desires are wrong? So right. that that would be the next step is, okay, what, we have the desi- these desires, how do we discover, how do we figure out which ones are right, which ones are wrong? That's kind of where the conversation goes from there. But yeah, books about natural law. I mean, I, I mentioned the name Thomas Aquinas before, probably not, <laughs> not a great place to start, but he is the hero of natural law. I mean, he was a a thinker who lived almost a thousand years ago now, but is heralded by many as really the key figure when it comes for making um, a case for the natural law. Now he's a Christian, of course, but um, his even non-Christian philosophers recognize that he um, makes very good um, his his argumentation is very tight. Very makes very good arguments. All right, very good. And uh, yeah, some Jay Budashevsky or exactly. That's the next name I was going to mention. Yep, maybe for somebody who would um, uh, just be starting out. There's a great book he has called uh, "What We Can't Not Know." Well, that's good. Good stuff. Good enough, Uh, Adam. I appreciate you coming on. I really do. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity. It was good to talk to you and and share with you and your listeners what uh, what I've been thinking about lately and writing about. And I just really enjoy. I really enjoy you know movies that make you think. I enjoy conversation that makes you think. And uh, I like your program and I like what you're doing, Devin, because that's what you're that's what you're all about is is helping people to think deeply about these serious topics. Well, we're we're grateful to be able to bring on guests like yourself to help us do that. So. Look forward to having you back on again in the future, and uh, we have to have to get up for breakfast again sometime soon. I'd love it. I'd love it. All right, my friend. Appreciate you coming on. Yep, we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. All right, folks, join us uh, next week, another edition of Theology Matters. Uh, again, the Nine Marks Conference at Southeastern. It's going to be next Friday and Saturday. Pray for us as we will be there uh, the the session is going to be dealing with church discipline. What is church discipline? How is it admonished, administered, etc.? Uh, pray for us this Saturday. Again, I'll be at Park Baptist speaking on Jesus of 
Christianity versus Jesus of the Cults, uh, please email us at devinpalu at rationochristi.org, and you can support us at devinpalu.rationochristi.org. Thanks, and see you next week. God bless.